1: Alerts and guidelines on securing the software supply chain. Ocean Lotus is back with its watering holes. Two significant breaches are disclosed. Malek Ben Salem from Accenture Labs explains privacy attacks on machine learning. Rick Howard brings the hash table in on containers. And hey, we hear there's some weird stuff out there about vaccines, but GCHQ is on the case. From the Cyberwire Studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Monday, November 9th, 2020. The US FBI last week made public an alert issued on a restricted basis back in October. The alert warned that unknown actors had exploited insecurely configured instances of the SonarCube code review tool to steal source code from companies and government agencies. ZDNet summarizes the research into and remediation of the issue, while the industry has been rife with warnings of the ways in which MongoDB and Elasticsearch databases can be left exposed— The comparable problem of exposing SonarCube was often overlooked. But the consequences of an unsecured SonarCube instance are significant for the software supply chain, since the tool is used in checking code during development. The typical problem is that organizations using SonarCube have left in place default configurations on port 9000 and default admin credentials. Those default credentials are admin, admin. That ought to be a red flag for... Everyone. Admin-admin is about as good as username-password, so do remember to change those defaults. Calling the pandemic a wake-up call, the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has released a set of lessons learned on building a more resilient information technology and communication supply chain. Noting the ways in which the supply chain has been globalized, as the document says, a product may be designed in New York, built in Vietnam, tested in Taiwan, stored in Hong Kong, and sent to China for final assembly before it's distributed, CISA's task force identifies three primary areas in which supply chains are vulnerable. Those are, first, lean inventory approaches, second, undiversified suppliers, and third, ignorance of lower-tier suppliers. Their recommendations fall into these categories. Proactive risk classification, map the corporate supply chain, broaden supplier network and regional footprint, potential development of standardized mapping and other illumination tools, work to shift the optimal amount of inventory held, and plan alternatives in logistics and transportation. Researchers at the security firm Veloxity report that Ocean Lotus, The Vietnamese cyber espionage crew, also known as APT32, is using an array of bogus websites and Facebook pages to attract victims. Cyberscoop notes that Ocean Lotus has, since its discovery in 2017, been particularly active against foreign corporations doing business in Vietnam. Two significant data breaches have come to light and are currently under investigation. The Indian online grocer Big Basket has sustained a data breach, Exposing the data of about 20 million users. According to Bloomberg Quint, the cyber intelligence firm Cybel has informed the Bengaluru police cyber crime cell that it's detected criminals selling leaked data on the dark web for some 3 million rupees, or a bit more than 40,000 US dollars. The data at risk includes email addresses, phone numbers, order details, and physical addresses. So it's not the gold standard of fulls, but it's a serious breach nonetheless. The other data exposure incident affected the Spanish firm Prestige Software, whose channel management platform, Cloud Hospitality, automates hotel accommodation availability for delivery to online booking services, such as Expedia and Booking.com. Website Planet's investigation shows that some significant personally identifiable information is at risk— including names, email addresses, phone numbers, full pay card information, and even details on guests' reservations themselves, dates of stay, special requests, and so on. Reports say that Britain's GCHQ has gone on the offensive against anti-vaccine propaganda. The Times says that the SIGINT agencies using techniques proved against Islamic State online activity against state-sponsored purveyors of vaccine disinformation— It's not a comprehensive rumor control effort, but operates against state-directed disinformation only. According to Reuters, GCHQ is taking down hostile state-linked content and disrupting the communications of the cyber actors responsible. The campaign against which GCHQ's efforts are directed is Russian, Engineering and Technology reports. The Week suggests the motive for the disinformation is at least partly commercial, since Russia is interested in seeing widespread adoption of two vaccines developed in that country. The disinformation is directed against a COVID-19 vaccine developed in the U.K. by AstraZeneca and Oxford University. One might think that such disinformation would take the high-toned Friend of Nature line that circulates in the tonier precincts of Silicon Valley or Marin County. Vaccination causes various childhood development impairments and so on. Not true, of course, although vaccines have had their troubling side effects. Consider the swine flu vaccine problems in the mid-70s, for example. No, the straight line out of Moscow is a lot scarier and much more direct in terms of its proposed cause and effect. Here's the deal. So those eggheads at Oxford and AstraZeneca come up with this vaccine, right? But did you know that they used a chimpanzee virus to make it? Anywho, it stands to reason that anyone who gets the vaccine will turn into an ape on account of they made their vaccine from, like, some chimpanzees or something. What the hey? Chimps, man. Edward Jenner, call your office. Maybe using cowpox wasn't such a good idea after all. Weren't there all those cattle people mooing out there in the countryside? What? No? Well, maybe the whole ape-man risk is being overstated here. Or else there's some serious mad science going on in the Urals. But it seems more likely that this view of vaccine trials is more informed by repeated viewings of The Fly, the Vincent Price version, not the Jeff Goldblum remake, than it is by the history of medicine. The whole story is more Seymour's Fright Night than it is the New England Journal of Medicine. We hope that few are persuaded by the Russian campaign, and above all, we wish GCHQ good hunting. And it is my pleasure to welcome back to the show Rick Howard, the CyberWire's Chief Analyst and Chief Security Officer. Hello, Rick. Hey, Dave. So on last week's uh, CSO Perspectives episode, you made the preliminary case, and I would say compelling case, that since containers and serverless functions are really infrastructure as code stored in the cloud, that we need to protect them with the same rigor as any other collection of data we store there. Now, this week, you brought in some HashTable experts to get their
2: thoughts on this whole matter. What sort of feedback did you get from them? Well, as per usual with the HashTable group, Dave, my theories about how to protect our digital environments have run afoul of practical <laughs> considerations and resource limitations. Okay. What I initially thought was important uh, may not be. And the mm. question I wanted the HashTable members to answer was this. Is there a high risk of material impact to your organization because you use containers or serverless functions? In other words, should you drop everything in order to focus resources on securing these digital assets? The answer, at least for today, is probably not. Hmm. All right. That I have to say that's not what I was expecting. So what what's their logic here? Well, if we just look at the MITRE ATT&CK framework, which, by the way, I'm a huge fan of, Um, You're familiar with it. It's the most comprehensive, open-source collection of adversary tactics, techniques, and procedures in the world right now. And if you're not using it to establish your intrusion kill chain first principle prevention strategy, you're probably failing at that. Uh, Mm -hmm. We did a whole entire episode of this way back in Season 1 on Episode 8. But even the minor attack framework is silent about any container-related tactics, techniques, and procedures.
1: Why is
2: that? Are, I mean, is, are
1: the bad guys not coming after it yet? What's the, what's the reality on the ground?
2: Yeah, at, at least they're not right now. And we can debate the reason why, but it's probably because it's too hard to do. Not impossible, but hard. You know, adversaries have many other ways to destroy or steal data that are not nearly as complicated. So I was talking to Roselle Safran about this at the hash table. She is the CEO and founder of a small startup called Key Caliber. She uses containers to deliver her security service to her customers. And I've known Rizelle for a number of years, and she has a first-class cybersecurity mind and in a former life worked as a government cyber operator in multiple functions. Here's mm. what she had to say.
0: Well, I mean, some of it is just the infrastructure by its nature. It, it implicitly has some, some defenses in place. And maybe that's just because it's newer technology, and so that was more built into it um, than with some older technology. For for example, from from the perspective of of the memory and and making sure that the the memory is protected, um, NX bit so the the an attacker couldn't execute from the stack, and ASLR so where everything is in a the the stack is in random locations. Um, it, it forces the attacker to have to go to you know, return-oriented programming attacks, so they can't even get to softball attacks. And so you have that type of infrastructure that, that's already in place with it, and so that helps.
2: This doesn't mean that hackers will never try to leverage this new client-server architecture. It just means that they aren't right now that if your organization has limited cyber defense resources and you still have work to do, preventing all the things we already know that hackers do that are currently listed in the minor attack framework, diverting security resources away from that to containers and serverless functions is probably not the right move. Mm.
1: Well, as always, there's a lot more to the conversation. uh, So check out here what the uh, hash table had to say. It's the CSO Perspectives podcast. It is part of CyberWire Pro. You can check that out on our website. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. that's vanta.com slash cyber And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Malek ben Salem. She's the america's security r and d lead at Accenture Labs. Uh, malek, it is great to have you back. Um, I wanted to focus today on uh, some stuff that you and your team have been tracking, and, and this is privacy attacks to machine learning. What's going on here?
3: Yeah, uh, Dave, as you know, more and more businesses are using their data to gain insights into their clients or customers and, you know, using it for predictive uh, use cases. And and that means, you know, using machine learning, if you will, Um And this has been expedited by the prevalence of data, but also by the capabilities, uh, the computing capabilities available to us on the cloud. Um, But that machine learning, whether it's performed by one company uh, on its own or whether it's performed in collaboration with ecosystem partners, requires, in in most cases, sharing data between the different parties or uploading data to the cloud. And there are... um, New risks associated with that, particularly privacy risks, which uh, which is what I want to focus on today. The first one uh, comes from if if a party is uploading data um, and storing it on the cloud uh, in the clear, right? Obviously, obviously there's a risk associated with that. Most companies do um, encrypt their data when they upload it to the cloud uh but that data has to be decrypted if you want to perform any computation on it so when it gets um decrypted then it you know there's a, there's a privacy risk if the con- if the data contains uh private information that is just you know the obvious risk but most companies do a pre-processing step where they try to anonymize the data of uh, you know remove any uh, sensitive or um, PII data. Uh, But we've seen that uh, that step is not enough to prevent de-anonymization. And there have been several attacks where the data was anonymized, uh, but parties can take or adversaries can take that data and combine it with uh, external data or third-party data to be able to de-anonymize it and to re-identify the individuals whose data shows up um, in in that data set. But those are, again, those are the, you know, the straightforward attacks. Um, But there are more sophisticated attacks. So one of the techniques that companies do, or one of the pre-processing steps, they go for, uh, in order not to uh, have their data, their private data in the clear, uh, on the cloud or any on any system is a step where they take the raw data and turn it into uh, what is known as features that can be used by the machine learning model as input. So this mm-hmm. is a pre-processing step that extracts some of the you know the uh, identifying uh, so some of the features that are used to train the machine learning model out of the raw data. and then the party would take that feature data, and upload it on uh, the cloud or the you know the server where they perform the computation instead of the raw data itself. Hmm. However, uh, adversaries can uh, even when when only the features are transferred and stored on the um, computation server. Uh, there is a threat known as a reconstruction attack, where the adversaries go. Is reconstructing the raw private data by using the knowledge they have uh, of the feature vectors. So examples of that uh, that have been performed previously is uh, are um, taking a fingerprint or reconstructing a fingerprint image uh, from a minutiae template. Mm-hmm. That includes just features, uh, or uh, you know, taking mobile device. Touch gestures uh, and reconstructing the touch events from from the features uh, that include the velocity and the direction of the of the touch. Now, in in these cases, in both of these cases, the you know the threat was uh, resulted in a security threat. So, from a privacy threat, uh, this resulted into a security threat to an authentication system. Hmm. Um, so that's basically the third type of attack, and this, you know, this can be exa- exacerbated uh, by the type of machine learning algorithm that is used. Um, so in some cases, even if that feature data is not available, uh, but the adversary gets access to the machine learning model that uses it, some of the machine learning models store these feature vectors in them. So you know, models like a support vector machines or the, curious, uh, the k uh, KNN the K-nearest-neighbor algorithm, use these feature vectors to identify the model itself. Mm. So if the adversary gets access to the model without getting access to the data at all, they may be able to uh, infer some information, private information, uh, about uh, the individuals whose data was used to build that model.
1: Hmm. Wow. Well, it's a lot to unpack, but I uh, you, 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 <laughs> always <laughs> appreciate you explaining this stuff for us. Melek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Oh, what heights will hit. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security ha I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed and check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence. Every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland, out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Guru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Fitner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.